You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. You're now tuned into the Pod Awful channel. Pod Awful. Bi-quarterly women's social club. Dazed and convicted. Pool party radio. Show King. The Devil's Advocate. The Projection Booth. Awful Flips. Pod Awful. Dot Net. Everybody is talking about the new flick, Bone. Bone is a brother who goes to Beverly Hills to rip off a white dude and his bra. Bone, bone, show the crowd, tell the world you're black and proud. Bone, bone, don't despair. Gonna rip off whitey and get my share. Bone, bone, where you been? Beverly Hills and back again. Boom, boom, what did you get? Is there a promised land for blacks, Bone? Hell no. Boom, boom, where you been? Beverly Hills and back again. Boom, boom, what did you get? A whole lot of fun, but deeper in debt. Bone is bad. You better check it out. Widescreen color and rated R. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is my co-host, Mr. Rob St. Mary. My favorite dish, ratatouille a la housewife. Also back with us after too long of an absence is Mr. Joe Bannerman of the Daily Grindhouse podcast. Hey, fellas. Want a popsicle? This week we are talking about Larry Cohen's 1972 film, Bone. The film stars Andrew Duggan and Joyce Van Patten as Bill and Bernadette, a suburban couple who meet Bone, played by Yafat Koto. Bone disrupts the couple's life in every way. He suddenly spill out to clean out a secret bank account, leaving him plenty of time to get to know Bernadette. And he certainly does. Before we get too far into things, there are going to be spoilers galore in this discussion. So if you want to be surprised, turn us off now and go track down Bone. It's readily available on DVD and not too pricey. So, Joe, as our guest, when did you first see Bone and what was your reaction at the time? Well, this takes me pretty far back to last Sunday night. Oh, wow. Really reaching for that one. I watched it in the comfort of my filthy living room, and my reaction was, you suggested we watch Larry Cohen's Bone, and I had never heard of it before, and I was familiar, obviously, with Larry Cohen, more of his more horror-related stuff, such as the stuff, the It's Alive series, etc. Having never heard of Bone, I kind of wanted to go in fresh, let it catch me unaware, and to be honest, starting it, I was expecting a standard drama about racial tension. But I was actually surprised about how funny it was. It goes through several expected beats, rich people being terrorized by the down-and-out African-American, but upon closer inspection, you discover that perhaps they're not as clean or lily-white as they would lead you to believe. But the material is elevated by the set of quirky subplots, inspired editing, and a incredibly charismatic performance by Mr. Kodo. I went back maybe a um, month and a half ago from the comforts of my uh, disturbingly um, cat-filled living room. I watched Bone. And um, yeah, it's it's an interesting film because to me, there's elements of satire in it, especially that opening with the whole sort of uh, car commercial uh, used car lot kind of deal in the junkyard. And just aspects of it that leave you questioning, what am I watching in terms of reality? Am I watching something that's hyper real? Am I watching something that's complete fiction and fantasy of the uh, characters? And I do have to agree, I think Yafet Koto does uh, 
an amazing job in here. I think I go all the way back six months watching this for the first time. And it was that opening, that car commercial where Andrew Duggan is in a junkyard trying to sell these wrecks. And as the commercial kind of goes on, you see these corpses in the car. And that was just so unusual and such a striking opening that I was like, I was hooked. I said, we need to talk about this. And I really, after that, I didn't even care how the rest of the movie worked out. Just that opening was so amazing to me. And that it went on from there into such great territory. I was like, okay, this is great. Because it opens up so many different discussions, which we will have now. I, too, loved the opening in the junkyard. Hi, friends. It's me again, Bill. Bill Lennox, Lennox Auto Circus out where the friendly freeways end. The difference is love, friends. Bill Lennox puts love in each and every car that leaves this lot. Whether it's a late model or just a transportation vehicle, Lennox has got a car to suit your family style and your family budget. Yes, sir. And nobody gets... Nobody gets turned away. Nobody. Bye. One of these late models at Lennox Auto Circus. All freeways lead here. Lennox trusts you, Lennox. Uh, Lennox trusts everybody. Easy terms will be arranged. Pay nothing now, pay nothing later. Never pay. I run a clean business, I sell clean cars. They all guarantee, uh, carry our guarantee, our gold key quality, quality sticker. Yes, sir. Folks, that's what you get. You get a guarantee. Lennox is good. Trust him. Will somebody, for Christ's sake, take these cars off my hands? But I think what sealed the deal for me when I knew I was in for something special was when Bone is actually introduced. I love that. I love that he just kind of shows up out of nowhere. We've got Andrew Duggan. Bob is cleaning out the pool, complaining about the help and everything, and just can't find good help these days. And... Joyce Van Patten's out there sunning herself, and I love the the phone ringing and like her refusing to pick it up, and him not going over to get it. You know, he eventually finds a rat in the pool, and just their whole discussion about we're going to call the pool people because there's no way these white people are going to go in that pool and get that rat. And then all of a sudden, it's like out of nowhere, man. Yafet Koto just shows up, and it's kind of like this. We've talked before about the magical Negro character you know like bagger vance or some of these guys where it's like you know the black guy who can take care of the white people you know like uh john coffee in the the green mile well not only that but teach them an important lesson that they need to learn and bone kind of does that but a really fucked up way his appearance is almost mystical and it also plays to bones rather abrupt exit when at the end which i'm sure we'll get into later and i love how it starts with a slow pan going from Bones' shoes to his face. It's almost like an introduction to Superman or Count Dracula. It's almost iconic, his first appearance in the film. And I love the shot of him there standing with that rat in his hand after he gets it out of the pool. And just when he's talking to them and just bouncing, it's like, what the hell is going on? And he's just bouncing up and down like he's a prize fighter or something. It's just like... What what is he doing? Why is he doing this? But it was perfect. Like his characterization of, I mean, I have to say all of the actors 
in the film just give amazing performances all the way like down to the bit players is just great every performance is terrific and just i was just captivated by everybody because it just kept kept me guessing the whole time too it's not like i was like oh well this is going to happen and this is going to happen the movie just kept keeps taking these right turns left turns all over the place and the thing is when he appears at least to me like the first time i watched it i thought oh well he's just the guy from the pool company just like they do yeah so you just connect it that oh okay well he must be the guy that show he finally shows up and, and that's the thing that's really nice about the film is that this sort of you know odd tone just kind of kind of builds and builds and builds and it gets further out as you go. There's elements that kind of let you know, okay, you might not be dealing in reality or you're dealing in some sort of oddness, as we said, with the whole sort of used car lot thing at the beginning. But when he shows up, it doesn't seem all that bizarre to me. It's just sort of like, oh, okay, well, you know, the guy finally showed up. So here you go. We're here to take care of it for you. And just the weird, like, cutting style that is going on in the film where they continually are cutting, especially to the son of Bob and Bernadette, and every time they talk about him at the, at first, you see little clips of him, and it's like, where is he? You can't really tell. And they're talking about how, you know, he's uh, over in Vietnam and all this stuff. And I, I love that just the way that they interject this stuff. And we'll get that a whole lot more as the film goes on. These kind of quick cuts to other things, and just the way that they're cross cutting between what eventually becomes like the Bone and Bernadette story and then the Bob story. Even after he kind of shows his hand and you know that he has uh, nefarious intentions, they still feel compelled to, yeah, give him the tour of the house and try to reinforce this facade of a rich, white perfection that they're trying to portray to everyone else. Which then leads me to go, okay, you know, it's that time on the show when I'm going to say get ready to take a drink. It does remind me in that way of keeping up appearances and a lot of the stuff that Buñuel was doing about sort of social standing. And like, oh, you know, yeah, you may be poor and beggars and things like that. I was thinking of something like Verdiana where the, the beggars come into the house and they have this sort of dinner party and all this stuff. And, of course, it's sort of a satire of what you would have as a, as a dinner party. But, but in a lot of ways, it's this idea that, you know, this is the house. This is our stuff. We're going to show it to you, even though we're probably not happy to have you here. We still have to do this. This is sort of perfunctory. And then at the same time, sort of keeping up this, this veneer of civility, this veneer of the expectations of the society, you know, because it especially seems to break down for me uh, when he starts going over their bills. And he's like, what are you spending all this money on? And it's like, what's this and what's this? And he's like their accountant or something all of a sudden. And he's like grilling, especially uh, her on, you know, charge cards. And, you know, why are you spending all this money? What the hell's going on? Lay, you know something? You spend money for a lot of crap. You know that? Well, I think the whole theme of just false facades runs throughout. Even Bone himself turns out that he too is living under somewhat of a false facade or as he calls it the nigga mystique where he claims he's only good at one thing which is the breaking and entering or the raping i mean now that everyone's been kind of introduced to the african-american culture in film i think specifically the quote-unquote nigga mystique is, is is weakening and he's he actually it actually makes him flaccid later due to he can no longer do the one thing that he does well well there's that one line in the trailer that that i love and you know it, it had to be used 
you know, for the trailer, because it's such a powerful line in the way that it's delivered and everything. And of course, in the film where he's like, I'm just a big black buck doing what's expected of me. And just the idea that this is the expectation of the culture. This is, you know, the role that I'm supposed to play in this world, in this universe that's been set up. It, it takes him only about not even five minutes before he breaks down the facade that we've been talking about, the Bob and Bernadette thing, where it's just like, or sorry, Bill, Bill and Bernadette. I've been saying Bob all along. The Bill and Bernadette facade that they have, it's just like he comes in, starts looking at those bills, and just all of a sudden talking about how they have no money, and he finds you know, that Bill's taken out a third mortgage on the house, unbeknownst to Bernadette and pretty soon he finds this uh, bank book of this secret account which of course Bill's like oh no I totally forgot about that right <laughs> and then uh, it takes just a few minutes before he sends Bill out to clean out the bank account with the promise that you know he's just going to rape the shit out of Bernadette unless Bill comes back by like three o'clock he's got a ticking clock to go out there and do that. And from there, the narrative really kind of fractures into two narratives. We've got the Bone and Bernadette, and we've got the Bill story, Bill going out to the bank. And again, it's like within just a few minutes, he's talking to the guy who who is running the bank, to, to the clerk. And it's just a matter of, of moments before Bill starts thinking about what a shrew Bernadette is or has been to him. And he's like, yeah, no, no, I think I'll, I'll uh, reinvest this money. <laughs> so, so just <laughs> counting on her being murdered or, you know, raped and killed by bone back at the place. And it's just like, so quickly, these kind of decisions come up in this film. Like I said, it just, you know, like you think, okay, well now it's going to become this really tense, like, desperate hours kind of a thing where we've got bill out there and he's got to get this money in order to save his wife and how's he going to contact the police and all this stuff and he's got so many opportunities where he could have got the cops or done anything or followed bones instructions but no he just says oh yeah what time is it oh it's getting up on three okay yeah no no worries let's i'll take my time and then it becomes like bill's whole adventure out and meeting all these women, going all to all these different places. He keeps running into um, Jeannie Berlin, uh, Elaine May's daughter, runs into her a couple times, and just the way that they interact is kind of interesting as well. I also think that in that character, we see sort of this satire of like the hippies or the free love or things like that, just sort of looking at what that was sort of falling apart at this time. I mean, this was made 71, 72, so of course, you know, sort of the... If you're a fan of Hunter S. Thompson, he talks about, you know, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas that, you know, there's just like a point where sort of the high watermark hit and the wave rolled back. And I think that in a way, some of the stuff that's in here sort of looks at the counterculture of the late 60s and goes, yeah, that didn't quite work now, did it? Yeah, that Jeannie Berlin, she's definitely kind of a piece of flotsam that's been left on the shore where it's like all she lives for is basically – scamming the system you know we see her shoplifting she gives her whole speech about switching banks every couple of months so that she can get free silverware and that kind of stuff i don't get the ticket thing what did she talk like she's got that whole thing with the tickets do you guys know what's going on with that it looks like she's going from car to car which is hilarious because apparently everyone leaves their cars unlocked back then stealing what i thought were food coupons that you get after you make a purchase at the grocery store. I guess everyone also just keeps those in the glove compartment. 
and she just goes from car to car, seeing if they're unlocked and taking what I perceive to be their food, their food coupons. So you think they were like uh, green stamps, as they used to call them? If you bought certain it, things, you got these discount coupons. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Which is interesting, too, because then tickets kind of come up later on when she's talking about the movie theater. And she gives this whole discussion of going to see movies and sitting on the adult side and then eventually being molested by this guy. And it ends up being this huge story that she's telling and Bill's questioning her, like, why didn't you tell anybody? And she's like, I didn't want to get kicked out of the movies. I- Did you ever read the back of your ticket? No, you never read it. They don't want you to read it. That's why they tear it up before you can read it. I'll tell you what it says. Are you ready for this? The management reserves the right to relinquish the license granted by this ticket by refunding the purchase price. How do you like that shit? Is it significant? It's full of big words that a little kid can't understand. It means that they can kick you out for any reason at all just by giving you your money back. Is that so terrible? Have you ever been kicked out of the movies? Then you don't know. Being hauled through the lobby by the usherette, standing out there, looking at all the glossies, knowing that you'll never get to see that scene. Where did they expect me to go? Home? Her logic is so sound when it comes to like why she wouldn't, you know, tell on this guy who was there. And then I love that as she's telling this and as we're going along in the film, Bill basically starts becoming this character. You know, she talks about how he smells the same way that this molester did. I can't remember what it is. If if, if she said pretend that you know who I am or if the molester said that, but then Bill ends up using that exact same line when he gets on this bus later on. Her scam was she would go over to the adult side and when the usher would come, she would tell them the person she was sitting next to to pretend that they're her parent so she could stay over there. And then she told it to that gentleman and he molested her during, of all movies, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. And uh, it's funny, she tells this horrific tale of the cold fingers and being molested, etc., but doesn't really break down until the notion of possibly being kicked out of the movie theater and not being able to return. Apparently, that's the bigger grievance than actually being molested at the movie theater. And I don't know about you guys, but it felt to me like when she started associating Bill with this molester character that she started to get even more turned on by him. Oh, sure. Why not? I thought it was hilarious when she was stealing steaks out of the grocery store and sticking them in Bill's jacket. Bill should count his lucky stars that she doesn't uh, steal steaks like Divine does and Pink Flamingos. You know, in a lot of ways, her, as you're saying, getting turned on by the idea of being abused or with this person who's, you know, obviously wouldn't be good for her, in a lot of ways is a mirror of the other story between Bone and Bernadette. So it just seems that as things continue to kind of ramp up there, that situation gets much more in that similar vein at times. Again, we think that this is going to play out in a very particular way. We've got Bernadette kind of getting a little bit drunk, though I love that Bone is basically telling her, you know, that's diabetes in a glass. You know, you, you shouldn't be drinking that. He's more concerned about the high sugar content than he is about the alcohol. And we know that there's going to be some sort of rape or molestation or something going on in that storyline. And then that he can't get it up is another one of these left turns that the movie throws us. And it's like, 
okay, well, is he going to get angry or is he not? But then his whole explanation as to why he wasn't able to perform and then her basically trying to coax him into relaxing and her being the aggressor when it comes to this sexual relationship is like, wow, okay, I didn't see that coming either. Now, at that point, when she seduces Bone, were you thinking more that she's legitimately interested or were you more thinking that, uh, okay, my husband left me high and dry, I'll show him? I can see it kind of playing both ways, not trying to duck your, your question, but it feels like at some point she's trying to placate Bone to say, let me be, you know, I'll fix you eggs. I'm sorry that I'm not fixing them the right way. I can fix them this better way. And she's really kind of, you know, kowtowing to to him and everything. But then at the same time, it, it feels like, you know, she is saying, okay, well, you know, he failed and now I can make it up to him. So it's like, you know, she's trying to, to again, kind of kowtow him in that way. But then also it's like, no, I have this desire. I've not, you know, had my needs met in, in any way. And maybe she's doing it to kind of win him over, or maybe she's doing it to just fulfill herself. It's it's interesting that it can play out so many different ways. Well, I also think you could throw the whole sort of Stockholm Syndrome on top of it, too, because, I mean, I often talk about this, that, you know, if you're being held hostage, that sometimes people fall in love with their captors or they start collaborating with their captors. So, I mean, yeah, I think you could even see that as well. Yeah, so there's just so many things going on with this, and I think all of them are legitimate readings of it. And I think, really, it changes from point to point, and sometimes it just turns on a dime. I was very thrilled to see Brett Summers show up in the film. She's the lady in the bar who is talking about uh, Bill's dog, kind of brings up Bill's dog, which is also kind of this running theme throughout the film, this dog that Bill used to have in his commercials that he ran over and didn't really like a whole lot, though everybody thought that he liked this dog and you know was kind of known for this dog in his commercials. And then later on, they're talking about replacing the dog in the commercials with Bernadette, his advertising folks, <laughs> bring that up. But Brett Summers, I don't know about you guys, but I'm a huge fan of Match Game. I used to watch it on the uh, game show channel all the time. So, so to see her show up out, kind of out of context, because that's really the only time I ever saw Brett Summers was showing up on Match Game, I was just absolutely thrilled to see her. Though I was a little shocked to not see Charles Nelson Riley sitting to her, her left. She was definitely one of my favorite moments of the film. Almost Lynch-esque her scenes of... Uh, explaining the dental conspiracy which killed her husband, Alfred, and how he had to go to all these different dentists, and all of them insisted on giving him a full-mouth x-ray, which ended up ultimately killing him, I'm assuming, from the radiation or whatever. It was just seemed like completely out of left field. I mean, I enjoyed it, but I didn't understand what it lent itself. You're right. It's totally like that pigeon speech from uh, Wild at Heart. Right, and that, and it almost has another moment like that when he gets into a when he, the woman in the bank line strikes up a conversation with our hero, and she just obsesses on uh, how her checks are illustrated either with surfers or with tennis players and how beautiful money is, etc. It, uh, I mean, I know he's kind of going on this odyssey of meeting sort of like a slice of society he's not accustomed to, 
but it also seems like it's coming sort of out of, like I said, out of left field. Well, when you mentioned Lynch, I'm glad that you did because I'd forgotten that the music in the film is very interesting to me. And there are parts that really reminded me of David Lynch. There's some like backwards violin type sounds at one point, And I'm just like, my God, this sounds like it's right out of a David Lynch film. The music is completely jarring at points, especially in the beginning when the character of Bone is still somewhat mysterious and kind of intimidating. Because for me, after the whole ED thing, I'm not saying anything about people who suffer from erectile dysfunction. Bone actually loses a bit of his mystique, and I, he's more of a relatable character to me. And I, there's less of the intimidation, less of the mystique factor in it. The music in the beginning during that during those scenes is very jarring and kind of adds to the tension, which uh, to me dissipates as the movie goes on. Yeah, the the music also in that scene where they're kind of chasing down Bill. You know, they decide to finally leave the house together, and they're going after him. They figure out that he's not doing the whole banking thing, and that and he's trying to turn the tables on them. So they're going to turn the tables on him by kind of entering into his world again. I love that that song, you know, like the Leave That Man Alone song that is going on while they're trying to chase him down with the car, which also has that kind of weird end to that scene when they run over the, um, the those things that puncture the tire and Bill's like, are you okay, honey? And then immediately Bone's like, are you okay, honey? Like the exact same you know, intonation and everything. And it's just like this weird echo that happens in the film where it's just like, what is going on here? I also enjoyed the music. Did you notice that when Bill initially leaves to go empty out the secret savings account, that he's listening to like soul music, like R&B, which seems completely out of character for him? I just love that, too, that Bill constantly is getting into like, in his in his headspace, I mean, really, we kind of start off, I don't know, maybe in Bill's headspace when it's him having this kind of car commercial type fantasy. But there are so many times where we kind of stop the action and he goes into this salesman patter, whether it's just him kind of talking normally, he'll just go into the salesman patter. But then there are other times where it kind of dips into his fantasy again, where he starts describing what he would say to the police or what he would say on an imaginary car commercial that would uh, exploit Bernadette's death. Yes, friends, that's the way I found her. Her legs spread apart, dead, the victim of multiple rape and homicide. Truly a tragic situation, ladies and gentlemen. So take your condolences and your sympathy to where the friendly freeways meet, where you can pick the car of your choice at an unbelievably low price during this limited tragedy sale. I just love that he keeps doing that, and he's just so it, it's such a natural pattern for him to fall into. And then even when he's having uh, sex w- with uh, the Jeannie Berlin character, that it goes into a fantasy where he's basically making love to a car. It, you know, we've got all these different like layers of fantasy. Listening to the audio commentary for this is is fascinating to hear Cohen talking about. You know, whose fantasy is this, and where? is fantasy versus reality in this thing. And it is very Lynchian as far as, you know, is it this person's dream? Is it this other person's dream? It's very kind of Mulholland Drive-esque as far as we don't know exactly. But sometimes we don't even know who our main character is. You know, are we rooting for Bill? Are we rooting for Bone? Are we rooting for Bernadette? Who is this? And then even within those, I mean, we have this Jeannie Berlin character where she is talking about her her past and spinning these stories and then 
Bill kind of becomes part of her fantasy. So I just love that we have all of these different things. It's not like this film kind of offers us any kind of easy answers with this. No, there's no easy answers. And what you were saying about the patter, I just thought it was constant reinforcement of what the ultimate shill Bill is. I mean, even at the end when he's staring death at death in the eye, he's still trying to make a deal to the point where he's even negotiating with Bone over if they all live together in harmony, who's going to get to do the gardening and the kind of cooking that Bone likes to do. That's right. <laughs> and speaking of which, have either of you had cobbled eggs? I have never even heard of cobbled eggs before. No. Well, there you go. My, me neither. All right. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, like I said at the beginning, we are going to talk about the end, and the, it's interesting too the way that Bill, you know, is initially on uh, in the car, and then he's on foot for a while. Then they take this bus ride, and I love that after they get off of the bus, you know, they have to make the the and they end up out in this desert, and Bill's like, man, that's quite a bus ride for twenty five cents. <laughs> it's like they're out in the middle of nowhere. And then we have the scene that you were just talking about, Joe, where it's just like, you know, they're negotiating basically for what's going to happen in the future. And Bernadette says that she's had enough and basically forces Bill's head down into the sand and kills him. And that's when Bone, just as quickly as he kind of came into the story, disappears from the story. Then I love her whole thing where she starts explaining to the camera, which is basically, you know, the police or whoever is going to come investigate this, all of the excuses for what happened and just immediately starts casting aspersions on Bone, you know, breaking out the N-word like crazy. And it's just like, wow, you know, she just turns on him so quickly and just uses him as this excuse totally reminded me uh of you know all the times in history where it's like oh yeah this this black guy came out of nowhere and did this horrible thing that i just happened to be around <laughs> you know it's like they were speaking another language i think it was asian well that's the story that i remember i think i was in high school or just getting out of high school and it was this woman in South Carolina, a white woman and her kids. And she said that a black man had stole her car and killed her kids. And then eventually, after like a couple of weeks or whatever, a week of them supposedly looking for the suspect, she like breaks down and goes, no, actually, I did it. So just the idea of that right there is, you know, this is 25 years you know, after that. And that was one that I really remember got a lot of attention. Yeah, I seem to remember like kids being stolen from shopping malls and then black people being blamed. And it's just like, you know, I, I don't know the last time that something like that happened, but I really wouldn't be surprised if I looked at the newspaper and saw it happening like a month ago. Maybe it doesn't happen as much as it used to. I hope to God that it doesn't, but I have a feeling that it's still one of these scapegoat kind of things. Do you think there's any type, and I might be stretching a bit here, of perhaps a supernatural interpretation between how Bone mysteriously appears and Bone somewhat mysteriously disappears at the end? I don't think he's like a Tyler Durden. I don't necessarily see him being a, a manifestation of Bernadette's you know self, subconscious or anything because of the way that he interacts with the Bill character. But it definitely seems like, you know, we I was talking about the, the mystical Negro type character. It seems like he was just there to teach Bernadette that she could kill Bill on her own. <laughs> that right. She didn't need somebody else's help to get rid of her problem. Yeah, I definitely don't think that would be his primary 
intention as far as that, but maybe if Cohen was maybe just planting, you know, a very small seed as to just to kind of leave a, a just a kernel of doubt with the viewers. Yeah, I think that he was just kind of messing around with this all the time. I mean, even that we open, I mean, before we get to the car commercial, before we get to anything, the pool, any of that stuff, we start with a light bulb going on at the very beginning of the movie. And that's what we kind of end with is the the kid that we've seen who they lied about and said was in Vietnam, but he was actually in prison for trying to run drugs. Him trying to break that light bulb and and lashing out and all this stuff. So it's like, you know, talking about those levels of fantasy before, is this his fantasy? Is this whole movie something that was happening in his mind the whole time or not? And it's really like you could pick a minor character. You could pick the the freaking bank teller and say, you know, maybe this whole movie is a manifestation of, of his imagination. But I love that we have those, that doubt. We don't know if bone was a real character if he just showed up if he is magical or if he was there the whole time or what it was and i i i love that there's not that easy answer there did you think that perhaps it was a bit too on the nose as far as the this lily white couple living this life living this facade with their head in the sand and then the husband dying with his head in the sand at the end <laughs> or am i reading too too deep into this I don't think it's too deep. I, I think it's a good interpretation. It's definitely not anything I thought of, but I like what, where you're coming from. Well, the other thing, too, and we've talked about this over the past month, I mean, was something like Bamboozled or even Watermelon Man or something like that, that in order for things to be satire, a lot of this stuff has to be blown out of proportion in a lot of ways. And I think that, you know, with that opening, with the characterizations, certain sort of histrionics within the film, uh, it plays directly into that idea that we know that we're playing in in the realm of satire that we're not playing in the realm of reality there are times where bone himself the character just kind of gets into this real kind of otherness you know his performance is has so many different levels as far as what you know him just being this kind of you know, upsetter of what's going on. And then there are times where he seems much more violent. There's times where like he kind of breaks down while he's talking about stuff. His whole speech about the popsicle sticks, I find very fascinating and just the way that he, you know, shows his emotions there. And then it comes back really hard and everything. So it's like, we don't necessarily know where he's coming from either with this. And I can see what you're talking about as far as this level of cartoonishness because there's a there are certain times where he seems to be playing that black buck character that he's talking about you know that's the only thing he knows how to do is basically rape white women and that's fine you know it's 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 a neat way for him to play that and to be that stereotype because that's what the white people want him to be at times well there's that and then there's like we were talking about sort of this fantasy within fantasy whose fantasy is it are we in the middle of that person's dream or that person's nightmare and that's the thing that as i said going back to bunuel was that's the stuff that he used to do so well especially like when we talked about discreet charm on the show where one guy wakes up and it appears that he was having the nightmare of the other guy and then there's something else going on so there's all these sort of various levels of what is really truth or fantasy is it 
you know, whose is it, as you were saying. There's such good writing in this, and it just amazes me that this is, like, Larry Cohen, I mean, Larry Cohen had been involved with television for a while before this, but this was his first feature. And for him to have this as his first feature that he wrote and direct and produced and, you know, shot at his damn house and all this kind of stuff, it's like, wow, that he could make this you know, from his background and everything and just be so tight with all this stuff and just have like, I mean, the, the speech that Brett Summers gives the whole discussion of the, the full mouth x-rays and everything. I mean, it's just great. Like these great little moments and they just all kind of add up as we're going along. So speaking of Larry Cohen, we are going to take a break and play back an interview with Mr. Cohen himself after these important messages. Hi, my name's Chris, and uh, I've got Stephen Seagal on the old dog and bone. Stephen. Yes. Have you ever desired to hear a weekly movie podcast hosted by two fellows from the northeast of England who run their little hands through the week's movie news and then cap it off with a review or two, ranging from all sorts of genres, kung fu, anime, straight to video, tomfoolery, bit of horror? Uh, no. Well, you're a dick. Who doesn't know what he's talking about? I don't even know why I'm asking you. I'm sure there's other people out there who have desired to hear such a thing, so if you're one of those lovely people... Pop on over to wafufm.com, that's W-A-F-U-F-M.com, and check out the show. You can also find us on iTunes, Talk Show, and Facebook at facebook.com forward slash wafublog. Wafufm, it's a podcast that's good and stuff. <laughs> Shut up, Stephen. Okay, and welcome back to another episode of Guess That Riff. With me on the show tonight, my first contestant is Mr. Fred Nurk. Fred, are you ready to guess that riff? I sure am. Okay, here's riff number one. Ah, that's It's a Long Way to the Top by ACDC. Fantastic, Fred. Okay, here's riff number two. Hmm, that one is Eagle Rock by Daddy Cool. Fantastic, you're doing great, Fred. Now, this one's a tricky one. Guess riff number three. That one is I Walk the Line by Johnny Cash. Fantastic, Fred. How did you know all those riffs? Well, I listened to Love That Album podcast. That's fantastic. Really? Uh, no. That's what you told me to say, Dad. Max, shh. I told you never to call me Dad during the promo. Go to lovethatalbum.blogspot.com or type in Love That Album, all one word, into iTunes. Listen to Love That Album. It might turn you into a rock geek. Or you might just con your son into making pitiful promos for your podcast. They're 12 miles of bad road. And now they have a microphone and their own show. It's the Daily Grindhouse Podcast. The official podcast of dailygrindhouse.com. Starring G. You tell that bitch who sent you here. How sorry I am I can no longer be her friend. And the man called Perry. I'm the one that killed Mungan, whooped Tuesday, and put Wins in the hospital. All the birds did a tell five did not the birds, Sarah Jones, son. Reviewing the hits and the hidden from the world of exploitation cinema and beyond. Featuring exclusive cast and crew interviews. Past guests include John Carpenter, Robert Forster, Brian Trenchard-Smith, but still no Steve Gutenberg. <clears throat> well, uh, we'll get him someday. We promise. I mean... We promise. The Daily Grindhouse Podcast, available on iTunes, Stitcher Smart Radio, Podomatic, and of course at dailygrindhouse.com slash podcasts. 
the Daily Grindhouse Podcast. Tough films for the rough crowd. Got the goddamn message? Let's go to work. How did you get into the business? How did you get into television? Well, I started writing right when I was still in college. So by the time I graduated college, I already sold my first uh, teleplay to Craft Playhouse on NBC, and uh, I was on my way. I never stopped working ever since. What was the, the television market like back then? Well, you didn't get paid very much. I mean, an hour show went for like $1,500. But you did own the show after you after it ran. You, 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 the rights to it reverted to you, so you might be able to use something with it later on. But the pay was minimal. But $1,500 back in 1958 or 59 was a lot more than it is today. More like $12,000 today. How did that kind of work back then? Were you pitching ideas to different shows, or were they just kind of hiring you based on your previous work, or what was that like? Well, I went around to different companies in New York. Uh, I had torn out a list of production companies from the yellow pages of the telephone directory, and I just went around and went to every office and hounded them and came back again and came back again, and uh, a few people let me write something on spec, which they didn't buy, and then I came back with the, the script, and they, they said, well, it's well written, but it's not what we're looking for. So I said, well, what are you looking for? And then I went home and wrote that. Usually, if I met them on a Friday, I'd come back on Monday with a script. You know, I wrote it over the weekend. They were impressed with the speed at which I wrote, and the dialogue was good, and I knew if I kept annoying them long enough, they'd finally hire me, and they did. One of the first things you wrote was a uh, 87th Precinct uh, adaptation. That was an adaptation of uh, of uh, the characters from Ed McBain's first book. He had just written the first uh, 87th Precinct book, Killer's Choice, I think it was called. And, and I took the characters and made up my own original storyline and uh, wrote a teleplay, which they wanted me to do. They had they had bought the rights to do a original script based on the Ed McBain characters. So I wrote that, and then that went over pretty well, and then I wrote another one after that called Night Cry, uh, which was uh, the first show that Peter Falk ever did on television, and made him a star overnight. Jack Klugman was the lead. Peter Falk had a small supporting role, but he was so sensational that all the reviews went to Peter Falk, and uh, he immediately got signed for Murder Incorporated, a feature picture for which he got nominated for an Oscar, and uh, his career was off, all from that one show. And now, is that when you first met uh, Klugman and kind of befriended him? Yeah, Klugman was in that show. We were friends. I don't think we ever worked together again, but we were friends over the years. And uh, Peter Falk and I worked together again years later on Columbo. I have to tell you, Columbo is one of my favorite shows. Yeah, well... It doesn't get old, you know. No matter how how many years go by, it does not get old. And I think you wrote one of my favorite episodes, which is uh, "Any Port in the Storm." Yeah, most people like that one. I think you're really gonna like this one. It's uh... oh, don't tell me. Let me guess. Sensitive breeding, rich bouquet, strong venosity. Well, it's a burgundy. I'm just not sure whether it's a Pinot Noir or a Gamay. That's really excellent. Yeah. <laughs> You astound me. It is, in fact, a Pinot Noir. <laughs> How'd you guess it? I know Cassini only makes three red wines, two Burgundies, Pinot Noir, 
and a gamay, and one claret, Cabernet Sauvignon. Now, you served me the Cabernet Sauvignon the other day. It didn't taste like this. So I know that this has to be a burgundy, and it's either a Pinot Noir or a gamay. You really are a sly one, Lieutenant. I find it funny that you kind of stuck with the McBain stuff for so many years, going back to it later on in the 90s, doing uh, TV movies for it. Well, that was a pure coincidence. They, I had written an episode of NYPD Blue, and the producers of this uh, these uh, 87th Precinct feature-length uh, movies for television uh, for NBC, they saw that uh, episode of uh, NYPD Blue, and they called me up and said, would you like to write uh, the uh, 87th Precinct movie? I didn't say a word about the uh, original thing I did when I was a kid because it was so long before. I didn't want to date myself. Uh, (laughs) I I didn't say a thing about it. I just thought, what an odd coincidence that after all these years, I should be asked to write 87 Precinct again. So I wrote the first one, which was called Ice, and that was based on a book by Ed McBain, and then that went over well, so they asked me to write uh, Heat Wave which was another Ed McBain uh, story that I elaborated on. There had been some talk of maybe being able to turn it into a series, uh, but it never happened. So I want to skip ahead a little bit to Bone. How did that come about as your first project? I've written quite a few feature movies, and I was always disappointed in the, in the outcome of the movies. I didn't really like the way they were put on the screen. I thought the script was always much better than the uh, than the finished product, and uh, so I wanted to do my own movies. And I thought, well, I have to direct my own movie, so uh, how am I going to go about it? I have to write myself a script that is controllable, that I could shoot, preferably in my own house uh, with a small cast, a minimal budget, and uh, maybe I could make the movie. Maybe I, maybe I can find somebody to put up some money so I wrote this script, and then I found uh, Nick Vanoff, that's V-A-N-O-F-F, who was a producer of, of the Hollywood Palace television series, and uh, also uh, Hee Haw. So he's making a lot of money in television. He was rolling in dough, and uh, the $85,000 I got from him didn't really hurt too much. I, I promised Nick, that if I didn't get him his money back uh, on the movie, that I would write him a free screenplay. Well, I never got him his money back, but he was a gentleman. He never asked for the free screenplay. So I got to make the movie, $85,000. But that wasn't enough to finish the movie. I had to get completion money to pay off any of the debts I had and also pay for the uh, mix and the music and the answer print and all the other uh, accoutrements that go with the finished picture. So I had started showing the film around to all the studios, and uh, I took the picture all over town, and I took it to New York also. In those days, you had to haul around 10 reels of picture and 10 reels of track. That's a tremendous amount of uh, footage to be carrying around. And uh, in New York City, I had one of those carts that people used to bring the garbage out from buildings like superintendents push around, you know. Uh, I had my my films stacked in there in boxes, and I'd be taking it around to different office buildings. Sometimes the elevator man would say, you can't bring that into the building, you got to go to the service entrance. I'd say, well, I'm not a delivery man, I'm the director of the movie. So I have to talk him into letting me bring the thing upstairs. Then after we showed the movie, and I always insisted on staying for the showing, most of the uh, buyers uh, 
try to get you to leave so they could watch the picture in private and take telephone calls and walk in and out and make nasty comments. But I, I wouldn't stand for that. I always insisted that I stay, sit through the entire screening with them. And uh, if they didn't want to let me do it, I said, all right, I'll take the film and go home then. So then usually they would change their mind and say, okay, okay, well, you can stay and so they watched the picture, and invariably people liked the film a great deal, I mean, but uh, they weren't buying it. I showed it to Joseph E. Levine, who was a famous producer, and they produced The Graduate and uh, other Mike Nichols pictures. He ran the film, and afterwards he said he just really loved the picture. Could I bring it back and show it to him the next day again? So the next day I went back with the picture and schlepped it into the building again and up the elevator and showed it to Mr. Levine at the end of which he said, you know, if you'd come in here a year ago, I would have tied you to a chair, he said, but I don't have any money right now to distribute a film. I said, well, Mr. Levine, if you didn't have any money, why did you make me come back and show you the picture a second time? He said, I liked it so much, I wanted to see it again. I said, well, I guess I can't argue with that one. That's a compliment, so thank you. And then when I uh, tried to get the, the, uh, the, the film out of the building, uh, there was a new doorman down there, an elevator starter, and they said, you can't take that out of the building without a pass. I said, I didn't have a pass to come in. They said, well, you can't leave with that. And I, so I went upstairs to the Joe Levine office again, and it was closed. They were gone. It was Friday, and they weren't coming back. There I was trapped in a building with my movie and couldn't get it out of there. But finally, after many protests, they let me take the movie home. So it was, it was always hard to find a taxi cab, too, that wanted to pick up all that junk that I was wheeling around. But at any rate, I finally found a buyer out in California, a man named Jack H. Harris, who had, who had distributed exploitation movies all his life. He, his most famous uh, film was The Blob which was Steve McQueen's first picture, and a big success as a horror movie. And he put out a lot of horror films and uh, exploitation stuff. He saw the picture in a different way. He thought because of the success of movies like Superfly and Shaft that he had a black exploitation movie. And I was trying to explain to him that it was really a black comedy. And, and, and it was not a drama. It was not a, a, a crime movie. It was a... It was a commentary on racism in America. And, uh, well, at any rate, Jack decided to distribute the picture and made a trailer uh, that uh, made it appear that it was an action movie like uh, like Shaft or Superfly. And, of course, when people came in the theater, that wasn't the movie that they were seeing. They were seeing something entirely different. One critic wrote that this, was, this picture was the most unintentionally funny movie he'd ever seen. Unintentionally funny. Well, I said to Jack... You have you have sabotaged my movie. It's it's supposed to be funny. He said, Well I, I didn't stand in the aisle and tell them not to laugh. I said, Jack, you don't understand. If people buy a ticket to see a drama and there's a comedy, they're not happy. If people order vanilla ice cream and you give them the best chocolate, they're not happy. They didn't order chocolate. So uh, you know, you you're basically misrepresenting what the picture is. So uh, so the first run of the picture was not particularly successful. I later on managed to run it in New York uh, at, a, uh, at an art house and it got some interesting reviews, but didn't really do any business. 
But of course, now many many years later, uh, that picture was made in 1970. So many many years later, when the picture's out on DVD everywhere, they open the picture every place the DVD is distributed. The reviews are ecstatic. People say it's a great movie, and they love the picture. It has finally caught on after all these years. It took a long time in coming. But uh, thanks to Jack Harris, I did get to finish my movie, and uh, it did get to play, and it did lead to me getting uh, money to make Black Caesar, which my, uh, my first big hit was. What was it like kind of making that transition between being a writer and being a writer for so many years and sitting in the director's chair? I had done a play in New York, and I did a play in, in London, actually, first. I didn't direct the play, but I was there when they were rehearsing it, and then when they uh, they took the play from its initial venue to tour it in other cities, uh, the director didn't go along with it. I went along, and I talked the actors into letting me redirect the play because they weren't happy either with the way the uh, director had staged it. So I said, let me let me spend some time with you and see if I can whip it into shape. And we had a very good time, and I realized that I could work with actors and I could get results from them. And so uh, when I saw that I could handle actors uh, and that I kind of liked actors, uh, we uh, you know, I went on to take a chance to make my own first picture. The play starred Honor Blackman, who, who was famous in those days as Pussy Galore in, in James Bond's Goldfinger, and it was uh, and Ian Hendry, who was a British star, who starred in the British version of The Avengers, and Honor and, and, uh, Blackman had also starred in the British version of The Avengers, and, and George Cole, who was a, a very well-known British comedy actor, who'd kind of a protege of Alistair Sim. So anyway, it has a wonderful cast, and I enjoyed working with them. And then when it came time to work with the actors in America, I, I felt very comfortable. You've got such an amazing cast in Bone. How did you decide who to use for that? Well, I'd seen Yafid Koto in a movie called The Liberation of Lord Byron Jones. It was a very poorly distributed film, not widely seen, even though it was directed by the great William Wyler. And William Wyler had directed things like The Best Years of Our Lives and uh, and uh, uh, pictures with Betty Davis, like the, uh, the young uh, the, the foxes, the uh, uh, what's the name picture? The, the little foxes. Uh, the little foxes. And he'd also directed Jezebel with Betty Davis. He was an Academy Award winning director. He'd also done Ben Hur with Charlton Heston. And he made this picture for some reason about racism in the South. And there was this Yafid Koto, who was this great, big, looming black man who was so dangerous and so frightening. And in the end of the picture, he takes the sheriff and puts him into a threshing machine. And the, and the sheriff comes out all squared off and bailed up like a, like a bale of hay. And, and Yafid's standing there looking at him with those brooding eyes. I said, oh, this is the guy I have to have for this picture. If you are a black man, the liberation of L.B. Jones will answer a lot of heavy questions that you probably never thought of. What would you do if you were the big-time brother in a small southern town who marries a young, black, and beautiful fox, and then you discover she's making it with the man? <laughs> Why don't you bite me right here, Daddy? If you get too bold, you might blow everything, because after all, you're the town's big-time brother. But on the other hand... 
if you do nothing, everybody loses respect for you. L.B. tries to cut his mane squeeze loose, and he discovers that it's not the easiest thing in the world to do. Lola Falana is black and beautiful in a role as Emma. Roscoe Lee Brown is L.B. How would you get your game together if you were L.B.? See, the liberation of L.B. Jones. It's a mean flick. Rated R, under 17, not admitted without parents. liked the script and immediately agreed to do it. So that was great. And to, to this day, he always says that that's the best performance he ever gave on film. He he went on to do The Great White Hope, replacing James Earl Jones and playing it in New York and then in London. And he's a very fine actor. So I was lucky to have him. And, and that was the hardest part to cast. And uh, Andrew Duggan, who played the car salesman, who was the husband in the picture, was an old friend of mine. And I knew I could get him to do the part because he and I spent a lot of time together socially. And uh, I kind of tailored the part for him. Uh, Joyce Van Patten was a comedy actress who'd been in a lot of Neil Simon plays. And uh, so she was a natural. And then Jeannie Berlin came along, and she was the daughter of Elaine May, the famous writer and comedian who was part of the team of Mike Nichols and Elaine May. So uh, she was she was right for the part that she was casting, and and that part ended up getting her the lead in The Heartbreak Kid, which was made right afterwards, and for which she got an Oscar nomination. So, uh, but she was the daughter of uh, uh, Elaine May, who actually directed The Heartbreak Kid, and couldn't get the producers to let her use her daughter in the picture. So she came out to California to see me and looked at Bone, and she said, gee, Jeannie's so good in the part, could you make copy of the scenes that she's in and send them to New York? And and I did, and it got Jeannie the lead in the Heartbreak Kid. So it was uh, a good deed, and uh, I was glad to do it. And so we had a good time making the picture, and I was fortunate to get George Folsey to be the cameraman. George Folsey was an old gentleman who'd gotten 16 Oscar nominations. In one of the years, he worked at MGM doing such great movies as Meet Me in St. Louis. So, I mean, I thought, isn't it great to have a guy who's who's photographed uh, Joan Crawford and uh, Gene Kelly and Fred Astaire and uh, you know all the great MGM stars, Clark Gable, and there he is working for me. And, and George didn't want to spend all his days playing golf he was retired, but he was restless, and he called up a lot of the old guys from MGM uh, who were also retired, and they all came to work on the pictures, so I had first-class crew, and uh, I was just so honored to have these guys uh, working for me who had done all these wonderful pictures that I grew up on. So it was a very nice experience making the picture. And then even when we did the post-production at MGM, uh, we had the Foley stage over at MGM. And Foley stage is where they do the sound effects of footsteps. And uh, and I had these old guys who worked at MGM for years. They not only did the footsteps for uh, Clark Gable and Robert Taylor and all those stars, but they also did the footsteps for, for Lana Turner and Joan Crawford. They, When they did those scenes, they just put on high heels and walk around on the floors and create the sound effects of the footsteps. And it was a bunch of old guys 
walking around high heels doing footsteps. I thought it was just a terrific experience working with them. I had a great time. And my op- at my offices to edit the picture were at MGM Studios, and um, it, it was um, it was a lovely experience. I love the patter that Andrew Duggan has, that whole used car salesman voice that he gets as he's going through his day in the film. Just so good. Did you just kind of base that on what was on TV at the time? Well, there were a lot of those kind of salesmen on the TV out here, and Andy had just, was, had just the proper voice to play that part. I mean, he'd done many parts uh, uh, and many commercials, and he, he was very, very busy as a voiceover artist, uh, narrating commercials and TV trailers and motion picture trailers. And he, his voice was all over the place, so he, he was a well-known voice as well as a well-known actor. I think one of my favorite scenes in the film is um, when they first go into the house and he and Joyce Van Patten are kind of almost like, it's almost like a sales commercial for the house, just kind of talking about all of the different aspects of where things are and who the previous owners were and everything. That is just a really brilliant scene. This house was built in 1929 by the family of William Randolph Hearst. The... uh, last couple that owned the house were getting a divorce. That's how we got it for a song. <laughs> you know who lived here once? Tom Mix. Remember Tom Mix? This is the, uh, well, this is the entrance hall, the, the kind of vestibule which, uh, opens up to the dining room. And then, just through this door, we get to the breakfast room, which usually is orange and yellow and, uh, we used kind of sunlight as a motif. And then this is kind of uh, the butler's pantry. And you see there's another entrance from the dining room into this. Over there, you see, uh, is our living room, which has a working fireplace and plenty of room. And of course, it affords a terrific view of the front lawn and also the side. This is a special mobile that I'm very fond of, and it, it drips water. And a lot of people spend a lot of time trying to figure out exactly where the water, how the water gets back up to it. And I'm very proud of it, and you think it's lovely. And then going up these few steps, we get into my husband's office, which I don't really spend too much time in. This is his domain. This is his office. He takes care of it. I thought it was bizarre, but it was appropriate, because that's where people are in Hollywood. When you go to their house, they've got to give you a tour immediately and tell you the whole history of the place, and sometimes how much they paid for it. So uh, it's uh, it's uh, tip- typical of Beverly Hills. How was it directing uh, Yafet Koto at that time? Well, he loved the part, and uh, I kept improvising things and making stuff up for him while we were shooting. The, the whole thing with the orange popsicle we made up on the set, and uh, the whole s- sequence where he talks about cockroaches and, uh, uh, and terrorizes Joyce Van Patten, that was made up on the set, and... Uh, uh, we 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 fooled around with a lot of stuff. Uh, and there was always something happening, always something new coming up, always something to keep the actors interested. That's been the keynote of all my films with actors over the years: is keeping them interested by coming up with something new. You know, when I work on other movies and that's been on other sets, they're usually so boring. Everybody's just sitting around reading paperback books waiting for their time to uh, come on the set and do the lines that they've already prepared. 
and they know what they're going to do, and they know what they're going to do before they come that day. And uh, and I try to give people something new, so that they're constantly alert, constantly at work, constantly creating. There's no downtime for them. They're always in the midst of uh, coming up with some new thing or improvising some new piece of business and working on it. And so they uh, they, they they respond because the energy level is very high, and people are having a good time. And uh, the biggest compliment I get is when I see an actor on the set and I say, what are you doing here? You're not on the schedule to shoot today. And the actor says, well, I just wanted to come in and see what was going on. You know, that's a compliment. They really are interested in the production rather than just coming there to pick up their paycheck. It's really kind of remarkable. I mean, that coming from a writing background, but just encouraging that level of not necessarily diverting, you know, going away from the script, but just being so open to improvisation, I think it's terrific. Well, I'm trying to enrich the script as I go along. Most of the improvisation comes from me, but the actors respond to it. Uh, you know, uh, and sometimes you get an actor like Michael Moriarty, with whom I've worked many times, and he, he just loves to come up with new things based on what I tell him. You know, I can, I can shout out new lines to him while he's right in the middle of a scene, and he will just integrate the lines into the scene uh, without a blink, and then I cut my voice out of the soundtrack. So I can talk to him while he's actually acting, and and you can't do that with most actors. That will throw them off. But with Moriarty, his concentration is so intense that he can just pick these lines out of the air and uh, and improvise them into the scene and, uh, and never uh, give any inclination that he's listening to somebody else telling him what to say. Many of the critics write uh, that the, the actors look like they're having a good time on my movies, and, and it's true, they are having a good time. You've written so many different types of screenplays and teleplays. Do you have a particular favorite genre or a particular favorite script that you've written? Not particularly. I mean, I had a good time on uh, all the pictures in different ways. The, the film I did on J. Edgar Hoover... Uh, with Robert Crawford and Dan Daly and Jose Ferrer. Uh, that was a lot of fun because I had so many of these great old-time actors that I'd seen as a kid, as a kid and there they were working for me. And Celeste Holm and uh, Howard De Silva and you know, people who'd been in movies that I'd seen uh, growing up. And, uh, and uh, we were having a, a, a great time down in Washington, D.C. because uh, we were... We were getting into places that nobody ever expected us to be able to shoot, even the Attorney General's office in the Justice Department building. And when he was away on the weekend, he didn't know we were in there, but we were shooting in his office. <laughs> when he came back, he wasn't too happy about it, but he better keep the footage. But we did crazy stuff down there, and, uh, and, and the actors, I don't think, had, uh, with all the movies they had made over the years, uh, they, they had never worked with anybody like me, that's for sure. Now, I hear that you recently uh, completed a, a, a rewrite of Bone, or you're going to do do that one again? Is that no, true? No, I don't think so. I, my, my daughter has did a rewrite on it. For, I don't know much about it. I don't remember it very well. She said it in Louisiana after the after the floods and everything, and uh, and uh, I, I I don't think that that that's the way to go with the project. Uh, I mean, I don't really want to do a remake of it. I think it's a great movie as it is, and uh, all these remakes that are being done are movies of the 50s and 60s and 70s. None of them are usually as good as the originals. I mean, you know, no matter what they do, 
they don't come out to be as good. The Manchurian Candidate, I mean, we had an A-class cast with Denzel Washington, but it wasn't as good as the Frank Sinatra version. I mean, it just this wasn't. And uh, many of the horror movies they've redone, they're just not as good as the originals. That's all. So I, I don't. I, I have plenty of original scripts, and I have a website called LarryCohenFilmmaker.com. I don't know if you're aware of it. It's filmmaker with two M's. But uh, and on that I have ten screenplays that I have that have never been produced, and uh, you're welcome to read them and enjoy them, and uh, imagine your favorite actors and imagine whatever you want to. Uh, play your favorite movie music and read the scripts and and, and enjoy a movie uh, by reading it. And I got ten fabulous scripts on there, and they're all available to be made. And I got ten more that haven't been produced. So I write all the time. I've got loads of material, and uh, I, I couldn't possibly direct all the scripts I can write. But uh, I decided I would exhibit them, just like an artist exhibits his paintings. You know, when people. Painters, they want their work to be seen, and hopefully it'll be bought. And they put it in a gallery. So I basically created a gallery on the Internet of my screenplays, and people are, willing, are, are welcome to see them. And I'm not worried about anybody stealing them. I, I, they're all copyrighted, but uh, I'd like people to read them and, and comment on them and give me some feedback on them and maybe recommend them to some movie studio, and maybe somebody will buy it. Uh, they're better off being exhibited than, than sitting in a cabinet in my house. So are you working on anything currently? Yeah, sure. Just finish two scripts. You just keep doing them because, first of all, I get a great deal of pleasure out of writing. And uh, that's, that's the main reason I always did it, because it's fun for me to write. You know, other people find it agonizing to write, but uh, I don't. I, I never have any any blocks. I can sit down and write almost at any time and any place. So uh, it, it takes me about two or three minutes to go into a trance and then I'm writing. You know, I, I don't know what the hell I'm doing half the time, but I'm writing. And sometimes when I'm finished and read it the next day, I have very little recollection of having written it in the first place. But there it is. It just comes from the subconscious. I think that's where most of my work is done. You mentioned uh, the whole idea of uh, remakes and that there are too many remakes going on these days. I don't want to say you've been a victim of a remake, but you've, your stuff has been remade before with It's Alive. How, what was that experience like? Oh, well, they came to me and asked me if they could uh, buy the uh, remake rights to It's Alive, and they were going to pay me like a million and a half dollars for it, which was a lot of money, and uh, I didn't care. So I took the money, and they went and made a terrible movie. They made it over in uh, Bulgaria, and uh, everything was bad. The sets were bad, the production was bad, the acting was bad, and worst of all, the monster looked terrible, and uh, the script was awful. So what can I say? I was happy to, to uh, supply them with a good script for a remake, but they ignored it, and they made their own version. And uh, all I can say is the head of the company, Avi Lerner, Avi Lerner is A-V-I-L-E-R-N-E-R, and he's the head of Millennium Pictures, and they made the film. He actually stopped me on the street in Beverly Hills and apologized and said, I, I apologize for what a terrible job we made of your movie. So I said, well, you can't do more than apologize, I suppose. 
I kept their money, and they made a terrible movie. So what can you say? Well, and at least it doesn't tarnish your original. No, well, look, the original was a hundred times better than what they remade, and uh, the original really holds up. It's a quite a uh, quite a good movie. Yeah, I have to say, one of my favorite movies of yours is Q. Yes, they're always talking about remaking Q. Like you get calls on it all the time. And, of course, it wouldn't be anywhere as good because it wouldn't have Michael Moriarty in the lead. And he made the picture. Yeah, his performance is terrific. And I, there's something about the uh, the monster that I really appreciate as well. Yeah, well, we did the best we could. Randy Cook did the, uh, the animation. And David Allen, who's since passed away, Randy Cook worked on the King Kong that was made over in Australia in New Zealand, the last King Kong, and he's also the guy in the plane firing the machine gun at the monster on top of the Empire State Building. So Randy Cook has had a nice career, and he's a top-notch guy, and he did, he did the best job he could do under the uh, budgetary conditions that we had, which, we, which were very limited. We, we, we got more than we thought we would get for that money. I made the picture uh, in New York with like one day's prep, we just started shooting it. I hired the helicopter pilot, Al Cirillo, and we started shoot, uh, shooting the uh, aerial footage. In the meantime, I had the actress on the phone calling them and telling them to come into New York. So we didn't have any prep time, and we didn't have any special effects people on the set. I just shot the whole picture the way I wanted it to be. And uh, when I showed it to uh, the special effects guys, Randy Cook and David Allen, they said, oh, this is not the way it's done. You're supposed to confer with us first, and and then you're supposed to have storyboards for all the shots, and then, you know, then we tell you where to put the monster, and then you bring it to us. And I said, well, that's not the way it is. I shot the whole movie without you, and now you're going to have to do the best you can. Put the monster in the, in the scenes. Put them here, put them there. I told them where I wanted them. They said, well, first of all, you got the camera moving all the time from a helicopter. It's flying around. You can't have uh, the model animation in a moving camera. I said, why not? He said, well, it hasn't done, that's all. And I said, well, it's going to be done this time. Make it work. And they did. They made it work. So it turned out you could do it. It's just that nobody had done it before, that's all. I mean, what can you say? I mean, I... I I, if I had waited around for special effects guys to come and tell me to put to put everything, I never would have been able to shoot the movie. <laughs> I just had to go out there and shoot the movie the way I wanted to, and uh, they just had to put the monster in, and they did. You got to do it your own way. All the movies I've done have been pictures that I produced, uh, wrote, and directed, and usually I was the I was usually the production manager and the uh, set decorator and supervise the editing, and, uh, you know, I did everything on the pictures, and that's the way I wanted it. And, and uh, half the time, nobody else knew what was going on. But people said, what are we shooting tomorrow? I said, you'll find out when you come in tomorrow morning. No call sheets for them, huh? We never had call sheets. We never had a board, you know, with those strips that uh, I, I don't even know how to read a board. So uh, I, we never had uh, day out of days, or we never had production reports. We, we never had a, in most cases, we didn't have a production manager. Uh, later on, uh, when I joined the Directors Guild and you were required to have a production manager, I quite often paid the guy to stay home. 
<laughs> I didn't want anybody around uh, who anybody might mistake for having any authority. I, I wanted to make sure that no matter what anybody wanted, they had to come to me. I was the I was the front office. I was the entire operation. I didn't want any production manager getting in the way. So, uh, I, and even when it came time to call the actors to the set, I'd go knock on the door and tell them we were ready to shoot. I got something for you to do. I'd say I, I came up with something interesting for you to do. Come on. And usually, when they send some production assistant to the uh, to, to fetch fetch the actors. They end up insulting the actors in some way, and the actors get pissed off. So I went and got the actors and brought them to the set and told them what to do and whatever. Wrote the checks at the end of the day for all the expenses. I did everything. The The front office was me because I had the checkbook in a bag, and I, I ran the entire show myself without any help. My, my ex-wife, Janelle, uh, was a big help to me with the wardrobe, and getting food for the crew and stuff like that, and uh, and keeping people from killing me. So, but you know, as long as we worked at the hours that we did, which was sometimes 20 hours a day, we still got the same crew people wanting to come back for the next picture over and over again. I worked them to death, but somehow they wanted to work for me again. So, what can I say? Well, I've I've enjoyed all of your work, so you definitely. You're uh, doing something right on that end. Well, I've enjoyed all of my work too. I must say, I, I I I know there are people who say they never look at their movies after they make them, and but I I, I pull them out every once in a while and look at them like I'm vis- revisiting an old friend, and also reminisce about the nice experiences we had making the pictures, whether it was climbing to the top of the Chrysler Building, 77 stories above the street. I mean, that was pretty dangerous. And, uh, and, and infiltrating the St. Patrick's Day Parade to, to, without a permit to shoot that chase, and God told me to. And uh, all our crazy experiences closing down Pennsylvania Avenue in Washington so we could bring in old cars and recreate the uh, 1930s for the Hoover movie, yeah, without permission, of course. So we did so many wacky things, driving in a taxi cab on the sidewalk in New York City on Black Caesar. I mean, it was just one lunatic, one lunatic experience after another. In, in Hell Up in Harlem, we had a chase through two airports, one in New York and one in California, ending up having a fight on the conveyor belt where the luggage was coming down. And uh, Tony King and Fred Williamson are having this fight Everybody's trying to get their luggage. <laughs> they really were. And then we, these two guys are throwing themselves on the conveyor belt and punching the shit out of each other. And then I said to them, run up the chute and see where, you, where it takes you. So they ran up the chute where the luggage was coming down, and the cameraman ran up after them with the handheld camera, and I ran up, and we found ourselves on the airfield with the airplanes taxiing. So we ran across the airfield, and finished the fight up there but you know today we would be shot dead probably by, uh, yeah you would by, by the security people coming I mean, today i don't think we could have fired the machine guns off the top of the chrysler building without uh you know the nsa and the fbi descending upon us and running through the streets of new york with guns in your hand forget about it so uh, i i shot these movies at the right time for myself because today i don't think you could do it 
and and I think you'd end up in jail. And also, people are so litigious now, everybody be suing you, you know. But, uh, but it's, uh, in those days, we, we got away with murder. And I, I tell you, that was one of the big charges of making the movies, was seeing what the hell can we get away with next. Thanks to Mr. Cohen for stopping by and taking some time to talk to us. We're back and we're talking about his 1972 film Bone this week on the projection booth. Now, Mike, you know, in the discussion that we had earlier at the top of the show, a lot of folks may know Larry Cohen mostly from some of his horror stuff. But I think there was elements of satire even within his horror stuff. I mean, you take something like, um, speaking of stuff, the stuff. And you can find elements of where he was making social commentary, even within a a horror genre. And here we are, or sci-fi in some way. And here we are, I guess, taking some of the conventions of maybe late 60s sort of, I don't know if you want to say like sex film or bored housewife film or melodrama, maybe even Douglas Sirk sort of melodrama, and then layering all of this stuff on top of it. What other films of his have you been exposed to? And do we see sort of a common thread when we look back to this first feature of his and then forward into uh, other films that people might know a little more because they maybe have seen those? Yeah, I'm in the boat what Rob described as far as someone who's only familiar with Larry Cohen's horror work for the most part. I've seen the It's Alive series, God Told Me To, The Stuff, and unfortunately, Original Gangsta's. And so, again, I was kind of taken aback by Bone because I really was not expecting this kind of film to be in Larry Cohen's canon. Well, the thing with Larry Cohen is he's really all over the map when it comes to what he's written. I remember a few years ago when Phone Booth came out and I was just, I I don't want to say I was shocked, but I was very surprised, let's say, when I saw his name on the poster for it. I mean, you know, you can say what you want about Joel Schumacher, but yeah, it's a Joel Schumacher film and it's got like A-list actors in it and everybody's talking about this movie and I'm just like, really? This is this is Larry, Larry Cohen, the guy who did uh, the stuff, the guy that did It's Alive, you know, the guy that did all of these things and it's like, yeah, yeah, and then looking more into his filmography, I mean, Sure, he made a lot of, of horror movies. He made Q, which to me was one of the best movies that HBO used to play all the time. But, you know, you look again, and it's like, yeah, he, he wrote The Ambulance. He wrote a lot of stuff that, as I'm looking through his, his filmography later on, it's just like, oh, yeah, I remember that film. Yeah, I remember that film as well. And there are just so many that come back. And, yeah, he's making Full Moon High and, and you know, just all over the place when it comes to what he has done. I think he even had his hand in the um, Abel Ferrara Body Snatchers remake that we talked about a few months ago on the show. So it's like he's really had his fingers in a whole lot of stuff more than just directing. He's just got, has a really solid writing career. And then, of course, you know, he wrote a couple Columbo episodes, and anybody that does that is A-OK in my book. Greater than the frightening power of exorcism. More mystifying than any omen of reincarnation. The soul-shattering experience of The Shout. You are looking at a man possessed of baffling powers. His name is Charles Crossley. He's incredibly well read. The power to take the souls of others. Oh, yes, it's true. A young man wants a girl for his wife. He steals some trivial possession from her. 
casts a spell over it, and then she finds him irresistible. It's funny. Just buckle. Alan Bates is crossly. Master of primitive man's deepest secrets. And they are all dwarfed by his awesome shout. If I shouted for you now, you would die. As would your wife and anyone else around here. Susanna York is Rachel. First her soul, then her whole being possessed by the man with the shout. John Hurt is Anthony. His only chance to break the spell is in a stone. But which stone? And where? Where you? Find you. How long do you think you'll be able to stay? Months. So you'd better make yourself scarce. <laughs> it's not entirely normal. Oh, and what's normal? That's normal. gave me a terrible power over my enemies. He taught me the use of the terror of shot. Now I can kill with it. Kill. Instantly. Prepare yourself. Every muscle, every nerve for the ultimate soul-shattering experience of the shout. One of the films that I asked you guys to watch for this was the film The Shout. As I was watching Bone, for some reason, that film just kept coming to mind. I don't know if it was the sand dunes or what it was, but something about it was kind of familiar as I was watching Bone. And I have to say The Shout is a few years later, so this would have been a precursor to it. Did, was it just me? Did you guys see any kind of similarities? Was it, was I nuts to to suggest this as kind of a good companion film? Well, I think in terms of the mystical other man that shows up at the house, John Hurt and his wife. But also the 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 other thing that I got was, you know, I don't necessarily know if it plays in fantasy and sort of odd satire as much. It's a group of folks, and I don't know if they're on some island or something. They're just sort of at this place and. This mystical stranger kind of shows up who's been living in the outback for like 20 years. And he's sort of, you know, sexy and mysterious. And at the same time, you get this kind of feeling of danger and other things with him, too. In another theme they share is fear of the unknown. I mean, you have, again, the black man's mystique, as they explained it in Bone. And in this, you have the man who claims to be some sort of a aboriginal well, he's not Aboriginal, but he learned from the Aborigines magic man. There's that fear as well, especially after he proves himself to Anthony as being the real deal. It just really hit on a lot of sweet spots. I mean, you guys know that I'm a huge fan of uh, Blowout, and we talked about that a few months ago. And this one has another sound man, and he's capturing a lot of sounds. And... The shout also reminded me a little bit of Upstream Color, which talked about that on Outside the Cinema a couple weeks ago. Just another man who's out collecting sounds and everything. And just all those things kind of played together. The John Hurt character is just this kind of weak-willed guy. Who, I guess he kind of reminded me of, of Bill in that way. He tries to assert himself at times, but they're just it really isn't successful. And I guess, too, that 
what uh, kind of undoes the, the main character is uh, a bone uh, <laughs> that's been out there. So maybe it was the actual bone that reminded me of the other film. But for some reason, and then, I, I don't know, hopefully you guys en- enjoyed the show. Because I saw it years ago on TCM, and I really enjoyed it. And it stuck with me enough that as I was watching Bone, I was like, oh, this this movie is kind of complimentary. One of the things that was cool for me to see was a young Tim Curry and oh yeah and this must have been right around or maybe even a little after rocky horror and to see him play something else in that period that that to me is is worth price of admission but one of the connectors that i saw to both bone and the shout and i think that it maybe would have played more in terms of an influence on the shout because of where it was shot and it would have been in the culture in the uk at that time in the 70s is straw dogs because, you know, if you look at Straw Dog, sort of this weak-willed character, and there's all this stuff going on, and people sort of invading his home and his space and his wife and all of that stuff. Uh, obviously, though, with Straw Dogs, there is this fight-back element that uh, becomes very prominent towards the end. Uh, that's not necessarily in both of these films. But in some way, that just that sort of plot idea seems similar. You know, sort of, I guess, maybe if you were looking at stuck-in-the-house horror movies, and you got to go, well, you know, sort of the king of the the stuck-in-the-house horror movie is the Evil Dead. So everything kind of passed that to me, or the old Dark House, if you want to go back even further. Well, it's funny that you bring up a a Peckinpah film, because as you're saying that, I'm thinking of another Peckinpah, The Getaway, and that the Sally Struthers character, who kind of falls in love with the guy who is holding her captive, or maybe not in love, but definitely in lust. So I can see that kind of tie as well, because of the way that she kind of uh, cuckolds her husband with this other man, and it, I guess that reminded me of of the shout with that. the The most powerful image from the shout for me, the one that stuck with me after all this time, was Alan Bates sitting there at the table, and Susan York, Susanna York, next to him, like kissing his hand, you know, very obedient, like a, like a human dog, you know, and it was just like that image for me and just John Hurt's reaction to it. It's just like, oh, my God. But, yeah, he doesn't go on a kill crazy rampage and start, you know, trying to, to murder Alan Bates after that. But it was just like, you know, I, I can definitely see where you're coming from when it comes to straw dogs. It's a, it's a really good comparison. And it's funny that, you know, that it is Peckinpah, because as we talked about on Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia, Peckinpah always had this thing about masculinity, assertive masculinity, cuckolding women, or women sort of um, playing with their mates in some way, you know, emotionally, mentally, sexually, you know, in that way, and sort of getting over on them in some way. When, of course, within Peckinpah's universe, to be a real man is to assert yourself and your control over your universe. Right. Taking it back to Bone a little bit, even from that initial time that we see Joyce Van Patten and that whole little power struggle that she does about the phone and her refusing to get off her ass and answer that phone, and it just causes this tension. The sound of the phone ringing in that scene is so loud compared to everything else. And just the way that they keep looking at each other and Bill just keeps getting more and more nervous as it's going on. And then the second time it happens, he has to run over and finally grab the phone. And it's just that kind of nice way that she's just like, F you, I am not playing into this and just I have the power when it comes to this. That's like her first way that she kind of asserts herself in the film. And then obviously she goes way over the top from there. 
Okay, we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. All you suckers gather around. There's a brand new movie coming to town. So get on up and check the scene of the smoothest, baddest mother to ever hit the big screen. Main man, Black Dynamite. He's super cool and he know kung fu. Drives a $5,000 car and wears a $100 suit. You're so righteous. This is also true. And when it comes to the ladies... He's out of sight. Uh, let me guess. You one of these brothers thinking get by on a wink and a smile, huh? What about the smile? I am smiling. Black Dynamite. Never in the history of the game has there been such devastation. The CIA needs Black Dynamite now more than ever. We need you, Black Dynamite, now more than ever. I thought I told you, Hunkies from the CIA, that Black Dynamite was out of the game. And he's better than Shaft Superfly and the Mac put together. But when the mob kills his brother, your death will not go on a bench. And put the dope on the street. It's my nephew Bucky. He OD. He's back in the game and he's playing for keeps. Time to declare war on anybody who sells drugs in our community. But Black Dynamite, I sell drugs to the community. He killed my best dealer. I want him dead now. So if you crave satisfaction, then dig this action. Guaranteed to put your ass in traction. Black, black, stack, attack, and match. Backtrack, slapjack, boot black, flashback, ram sack, jam pack, and still coming back. You see where I'm coming from, you shot mother... Black Dynamite! All-star running back for Ronte Jones. Fashion model Tambula to come. William T. Michelson. Ronnie Sinatra. Little Tiny Tibbs. Junebug. Bo Willie Peter. And me. That bad bull hunt. Black Dynamite. Feel the cinema for the quadro that's right, we're back next week and celebrating our third anniversary with a discussion of Black Dynamite. Dynamite! Dynamite! And if you want, you can send us well wishes on making it three years without some sort of federal crime or killing each other or ending up in a pool of our own vomit. You can drop us a voicemail at 734-666-0800 or drop an MP3 to the guys. that's all one word, at projection-booth.com. So also want to thank this week's special guest co-host, Joe Bannerman. What's up with you over there at the Daily Grindhouse, my good man? Dailygrindhouse.com. Uh, Please come check us out. You've got reviews, trailers, interviews, Netflix picks, opinion pieces, fact pieces, everything you might expect from a solid genre website. Johnny and Paul run a tight ship and it's good stuff. Perhaps more importantly, uh, deep within their hallowed halls, you can find the Daily Grindhouse podcast, which I run. We run the gamut. Talk about directors from Berto Lenzich to Mafanaka, some fun jibber-jabber there. We try not to digress too often into dick jokes. By all means, check out the podcast. Come on Facebook.com slash groups slash Daily Grindhouse Podcast. Drop us a line. Let us know what's going on. And that'd be fantastic. Try to drum up a little business over there. Well, I just want to say that I really like the Daily Grindhouse because the Daily Grindhouse was kind enough several months ago to list the projection booth as one of, I believe it was, the top 10 podcasts of film that you should be listening to? Yeah, Jeff actually wrote that, and so I have no uh, I have no opinion on that. <laughs> if Joe were to write that list, we would probably not be on it. Oh, if Joe were to write that list, you 
honestly, to be completely honest, and you can even check out my five-star review of the Projection Booth on iTunes, Projection Booth was one of the first podcasts I ever come across, and to be honest, it spoiled me. I then dived into several other podcasts and have yet to find one better than you guys. Oh, that's so nice. And you heard the man right And then Rob came on. (laughs) Been downhill ever since. But you heard the man. At least he went to iTunes and put in a review. So you can, too. So feel free to go over to iTunes and put in a one-star review, because that's as low as you can go, because I'm on the show now. So feel free to do that, and um, I will love you eternally. So what kind of movies are you guys covering on the uh, Daily Grindhouse podcast coming up? Well, we recently covered Lindsay's Ghost House from 1988. Uh, The movie's... Not that great, but the podcast is pretty fun. By all means, check that out. We got Thriller, A Cool Picture, coming up soon, which will actually be out by the time this podcast drops. And in the near future, we're going to cover Ganja and Hess with hopefully very special guest star, Mr. Mike White. I look forward to it. I am going to get my ganja on. All right. Well, I'm glad that the check cleared. So all those reviews and nice things that you've said about us it, were, were good for a little while. I'll just have to remember your PayPal address. You. That's right. You. The nice things he said about you. <laughs> there is no us. Oh. It's you. Wow. And Rob, I'm about 20 minutes into Tainted, so I'll drop you a line about that, too. Don't. Just turn it off now. Turn it off now. <laughs> turn it off before I show up. There you go. There is no us in podcast. There's only ass. Well, thank you, Joe, and we will be sure to link over to the Daily Grindhouse podcast over at our site, projection-booth.com. That's where folks can head over to leave us some feedback, check out our past shows, and link over to our free app, which is available on your smartphone or Kindle. And we out. (laughs) 